2: Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase and a member FDIC. 2024 JPMorgan Chase and Co.
3: I was never um, a socially skilled kid. I never knew what to say. Someone would come up to me and, and they would say, look at my new doll. And I would say, I like elephants. And, and they would just like look at me and, and I, I never understood what I did wrong. I was always saying and doing the wrong thing. That's John Elder Robeson.
0: He's always had a gift for understanding machines, first as a sound engineer, then as a car mechanic. But the one thing he always felt was lacking was his ability to connect with people emotionally. He says he often felt depressed and anxious about his interactions. And over the years, he'd done a number of things to try and foster a deeper connection with others. Then in 2008, John came across a unique opportunity. He was given the chance to participate in an experimental brain study that he hoped would, quote, increase his emotional sensitivity.
3: I so much wanted to, to do that because when I had learned that there were these facial expressions and there were these whole like unspoken conversations that happened between so-called normal people and and I couldn't get them it was like there were two whole conversations going on and I could only hear one of them and I thought if only I could hear the other one if I only I could understand it I would be happy and that was this like fantasy I built up in my mind that if I could see these things in other people my life would be beautiful
0: On today's episode, when you discover that the thing you most wanted to change about yourself didn't actually need changing. I'm Maya Shankar, and this is A Slight Change of Plans, a show about who we are and who we become in the face of a big change. The core of John's story takes place in the 1980s and 90s when he was working as a car mechanic in Springfield, Massachusetts. But as you'll hear, John's had many careers over the years, and we started out our conversation by talking about his time in the music business. He has a rare ear for technical detail, and in the 1970s, he worked as a sound engineer for the likes of Kiss and Diana Ross.
3: I think that people felt that I could see Into the amplifiers, and I could see into the electronic systems, and and I felt like I could see it. You know, I I could stand out at the the mixing desk at a concert, which was, you know, running my equipment, and, you know, I could push. It's like pushing the throttles on a powerful boat, you know, I could push it up, and I could feel that this is just how far you can push it before you blow it up. And I think that that was a gift that was relatively uncommon. And, and that was the thing I loved about it. I loved, I loved making the equipment sing for all those people.
0: Oh, I love that. It's a very beautiful portrayal of what it means to, to work in sound. Um, you ended up becoming interested in cars, right? Uh, which is what you do right now. Why is it that you decided to eventually leave your musical career behind?
3: When it got to dealing with people, because music was my first job, the musicians appreciated what I could create, but uh, other people thought that I was uh, strange or bizarre or you know whatever, and, and, and I thought, well, what could I do? And I always had had this love of machinery and cars. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to be a mechanic. And, and I, I turned out to have a gift for understanding automotive machines just the way I had understood musical machines and other kinds of electronics. I left and I kind of never looked back. Hmm.
0: I'm wondering, John, can you bring me back to the day in your car shop when your client surprised you with a book?
3: I had always been kind of a, a social failure, but at my car business, I had to learn enough social skills, I guess, that people would come back a second time. And I spent a fair amount of time talking to the customers that would sit in the waiting room and wait for their cars. And I got to know them. Some of them came in over a period of years. One fellow was a therapist and, um, comes in one day, and he says, you know, John, I've heard you tell me how alone you feel many times, and I've heard you tell me like you feel like you're standing in the rain outside looking in the windows at all the people standing by a fire, and you don't know how to get in and be with them. And he said, "Uh, you know, there's a thing that we're talking about in the mental health community that kind of explains that. It's called Asperger's syndrome. It's a kind of autism. And I just looked at him, and I thought autism. Then he pulls out this this book. It was called Asperger's Syndrome. It was by a doctor Tony Atwood, and he says, "Look," he says, "It's people like you and and can't read facial expressions, can't tell when somebody's angry or somebody's sad, um, say inappropriate things, and get people upset. Have difficulty looking other people in the eye, and and." Other folks think that they're being tricky or evasive and, and like everything he's saying to me is me. Hmm. And, and I'm listening to that. And first I was like stunned at him telling me that I had this kind of autism. And, and then as he kept saying, this is it, and this and this and this, and every one of those things with me. And, and, and it was just, it was just shocking it's just like totally came out of the blue. It's not like I was sitting in a therapist's office saying, "Doctor, tell me what's wrong with me." It's like I was sitting behind the desk at my car repair place <laughs> and this is just thrust in front of me and it was shocking.
0: You're you're having this this life-changing moment and I'm wondering what did it feel like to have this kind of clarity for the first time?
3: Well, My first thought was, okay, if I have this Asperger thing, how do I get cured? And he said, well, it's not a disease. It's just how you are. People with autism, that's how they are. And people with Asperger's, that's how you are. He says, it's like being short or tall or, you know, whatever. It's just, it's how you are. But then, after it sinks in, there's no cure. Well, now I know I have all this trouble, and it's never going to end. And I was really sad. But I couldn't help reading the the book he had left me. And at first, I had thought, wow, people told me I was mental and stupid and, and sociopathic and stuff. All my life, I heard these kinds of things. And, and now... Here he is telling me, I'm not any of those things. I'm a a person with this Asperger's. Hmm. And that explains why I've had all this trouble in my life. But gradually I realized I can take the knowledge from that book Hmm. and I can teach myself to act differently. I can teach myself that even if it makes me uncomfortable to look in your eyes, when you're talking to me, I can look at your cheeks. I can look at your mouth. And when I did that, it was kind of amazing because people responded better to me. Um, even though I couldn't tell about people's body language and expressions, after reading Atwood's book, I understood that I, I would get too close to people and I would make them feel threatened. So I could just make a rule. If I held my arm out in front of me, I could say, I won't get any closer to you than two arms lengths when we're talking in the waiting room. And I began to see that I could change how I behaved and it really changed my life for the better. And and that's when I started to go from feeling, oh boy, you know, I understand why I had all this trouble, but it's hopeless to thinking, you know, I I can change my life completely with this knowledge. And, And that was a really, really big deal for me.
0: Did it lead you to reinterpret your past? You'd had experiences with depression. Did it help you understand aspects of that differently now?
3: The thing I had always wanted was to feel like I was a, a normal person. And, and so when I learned about autism... I had an explanation for why things had gone wrong with me and for why I was a second-rate person. And I have to say that today we have this, you know, really different autism awareness. And to say that I was a second-rate person, that's like a a bad thing to say now. But, you know, that's how I felt. I felt like I was second-rate. And, um and I wanted so much to be normal. Hmm. And so I thought, you know, I should write my own story about growing up and learning about this Asperger autism thing. And and that was what gave me the courage to write what became Look Me in the Eye. And the book came out and and all these people started reading it. And, you know, one of the people who read it was this postdoctoral researcher at Harvard Medical School. And she showed up at a talk I was doing at a bookstore. And she said, we're doing a a study that's aimed at uh, possibly helping autistic people see um, emotional cues and read expressions in, in other people. And we're hoping that your talks are attracting autistic people in the audience. And maybe you could hand out flyers for our study and you could attract some volunteers for us. And I was like thinking, yeah, I'll, I'll tell people, that, but I want to do it. I, I just, I so much wanted to to do that because when I had learned in in that Atwood book that there were these facial expressions and there were these whole like unspoken conversations that he described that happened between so-called normal people and and I couldn't get them. It was like there were two whole conversations going on and I could only hear one of them. And I thought, if only I could hear the other one, if I only I could understand it. I thought the reason I've always been anxious and depressed is because all I can ever understand is bad things. People don't like me. People think I'm whatever. They're going to fire me. They're going to throw me out. But but maybe there's this whole other set of messages where people really love me and they like me and they they, they want it. There's good messages. Maybe all I can get are the bad ones. And if I could fix that, I would be happy. And that was this like fantasy I built up in my mind. And so when she came along and she said, well, we're doing the study, hoping to do that, I thought, well, maybe it would work. Maybe that would happen for me.
0: Yeah. You know, you've written that autism gave you, quote, a mixture of disabilities and gifts. Can you share more about this and how it affected your decision to enroll in this study?
3: So the way the way autism had kind of played out for me by that time in my life um, The average person couldn't see into machinery the way I could. And the average person couldn't, um, they couldn't focus on details of things the way I could. I still, even with that understanding that I had gifts, I thought that my gifts were in the category of something in a freak show. You know, sure, they were gifts, but they weren't gifts that most people cared about and and the things most people do care about I couldn't do so I um I felt that the more I could understand emotional cues the more I might be able to be like other people and I wanted to be able to do that
0: yeah you know it's it reveals so much to me about where you're at psychologically with respect to your self-image and self-perception that you would want to jump at this opportunity, right? And, you know, just to let listeners in on the specifics of this study that you were signing up for, it was not without risk, right? It used TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, um, to activate specific areas of your brain using high power magnetic fields. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine not having a little bit of trepidation, right? Some fear associated with getting enrolled in this kind of study. Is that right?
3: You know, you might have thought of it that way as a person who was educated in neuroscience. Hmm. Um, I didn't see it that way. Um, The idea of TMS was or is that they take a coil of wire, which is the basis for an electromagnet, and, um, and they fire a bunch of electricity into it, and it induces a powerful magnetic field in that wire. They would put that on your head, and so they would fire a pulse of magnetic energy into your head when they put electricity into the wire. Well, I had worked with really, really powerful coils of wire and magnets in, in making sound systems. And, and it's funny because so many people, in in retrospect, they said, weren't you scared of that? And and no, yeah. because of my background in making high power electronic systems, I wasn't scared at all. I thought, bring it on.
0: Wow. That's so interesting. Um, I, I, I want to push you a little more here though, right? Because it's one thing to be building electronic equipment. It's another thing to have Specific parts of your brain activated by technology.
3: Um, I just, I really thought there was, I thought there was just like so much more that I was missing. And if I could possibly see it, it would be, um, it would be huge revelation for me. It would be such a huge positive thing.
0: Was your family as enthusiastic about this as you were? No,
3: my family wasn't enthusiastic at all. And my wife, she said, you know, when it comes to getting involved in experiments to change myself, she said, you're good just the way you are. Why do you want to change yourself? And I said, I want to I feel like other people. I want to have people want to be my friend and stuff. And she said, people do want to be your friend. People like you, you have friends And I I said, well, I I just feel like there's something more, you know?
0: Mm. So you you decide to enroll in the TMS studies. And I'm wondering if you can set the scene for me.
3: You know, to do the study, they said to me, well, we're going to stimulate these different areas of your brain. And the way we're going to tell if anything happens is we're going to show you on a computer monitor people making faces, people doing things. And we're going to ask, is it, is it jealous? Is it anxious? Is it eager? You know, they'll they'll have these different emotions and, and you'll push buttons for what you're seeing. And they said, we don't care if you don't get it right. Then we're going to do this stimulation on you. And we're going to put you right back in front of the machine. We'll show you another set of faces. And we'll see if your responses are more or less accurate or the same. That's, that's how we'll tell. So they put the images in front of me before the stimulation, and I didn't. I didn't have a single idea what I was seeing. So then they sit me down, and, and they start firing these pulses. It's one pulse a second. And the thing goes click, click, click. And every time it, it would fire, it would make a pop and I would feel this like twitch on the top of my scalp, which they told me was the energy from the magnetic field triggering muscles in, in my scalp. And so I was sitting there and all of a sudden she lifts the thing off away from my head and she said, come on, quick, we got to test you. And I realized half an hour had passed. Wow. And, um, and so I go over, you know, it's just like 10 feet and I move across the room and I sit down. And the faces fly in front of me and I push the buttons and I still don't have any idea. And I thought, well, kind of fool was I, you know, I imagined that I'm going to look at those faces again and I'm going to know every single one of them. Well, I didn't, I didn't know anything. So she says, okay, that's good. And I said, well, how did I do? And she says, well, I don't know how you did, but even if I did, I couldn't tell you because it's a study. So (laughs) then I go out down a garage and I get in my car. So I'm like two hours from home. And so um, when I uh, drive out, I always would play old music. And um, and I had a lot of um, old concerts, old bootleg recordings I could listen to. And I put on a recording of this... um, this show of a band called a Tavaris. And so I, I put on this show and I start playing. And it was like I stepped into a musical hallucination. It's like I was back there at the show and, and I could I could like almost smell it and I could feel it and and it was it was just an overpowering thing listening to it and and it drove along and it was. It was so overwhelming that it, it it made me cry. I pulled over and I was just crying. And all the years I had worked in music, I didn't feel the emotion of the music. I felt, was it technically correct, but I didn't feel. Was it happy? Was it sad? Was it longing? Was it wistful? I didn't feel those things. And, and of course, that's what made me a good engineer. Um, But now I was feeling the emotion of it, and it was just overwhelming. And um, I thought to myself, this must be what all those people in the audience were feeling when they listened to those shows. I thought back at, at all those concerts I had been at, and people were were crying and they were singing and they were smiling and I would see like tears, you know, from people. And I'd just be, I'd just be standing there looking out, mm. thinking it's working. The system, it's doing what we wanted it to do. The musicians are up there playing and and our sound equipment is working, but I never felt the feelings of the audience. And, um, and I went home, and it was really late by then. And, uh, and I sent an email to the doctor, and I said, This is like some really powerful stuff. This has happened. And I, I sat awake all night, and I just listened to old music, just sitting, listening to it. And it was like dawn. And it finally, the brilliance kind of faded away, and, and I, I went to sleep and and it was just was just an amazing night
0: we'll be back in a moment with a slight change of plans sometimes trusting your gut doesn't work like when you end up late because you think the line at the coffee shop doesn't look too long Probiotics can't help with most of your gut decisions, but if your gut needs a little support, Ritual has your back. They made a three-in-one supplement I love called Symbiotic Plus. It includes clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. All kinds of things can mess with your gut on a daily basis, like stress, travel, and food choices. I take Symbiotic Plus from Ritual every morning to help my gut microbiome. The delayed release is designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract. And I appreciate that it's in just one minty capsule, no refrigeration needed. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 20% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slight. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slight for 20% off.
3: Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JP Morgan, Chase Begg, N.A. Member, FDIC.
0: So John Elder Robeson volunteered to participate in a pioneering study run by a teaching hospital out of Harvard Medical School. The study used transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, which uses electromagnetic pulses to stimulate nerve cells. The impact of TMS on things like migraines, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and major depressive disorder are relatively well understood, but less so the impact of TMS on people on the autism spectrum. And the 2008 study that John participated in was entirely exploratory. It was a research study that recruited those with Asperger's, a diagnostic category still used at that time, and it's worth noting that among the participants in the study, John's response was singular and highly unusual in its expression, and it had a complex impact on John's life. It changed his understanding of himself in a profound way and affected the relationships in his life, including with his wife and the folks in the car shop.
3: I went to work and one of the guys was, it was in the hall and I looked at him and I thought, he has the most beautiful Brown eyes, hmm. and and then it like hit me. I thought, well, what's going on with me? I had never ever in my life had a thought. He has beautiful brown eyes, but of course, I had heard that people had said, "Oh, old blue eyes and you're such pretty blue eyes," and pretty, you know, I, I'd heard it, but I had never ever had that thought. And then I, I went into the waiting room and there were people out there and I looked at people and I thought, she's really anxious, she's really scared. And I never had a feeling like that before. I mean, I, I would go in the waiting room and and my logical brain would tell me, they're waiting to know what's wrong with their car. But never ever did I look at someone and think, she's really scared. <laughs> and And I, and I actually... I said to the person in the waiting room, I said, don't worry, it'll be okay. She kind of smiled at me. Wow. And I thought, this is like magic. This has never happened to me. And lest you think that my life was all like beauty and sweetness and light from that moment on, it wasn't that way. Because I, I went out. And I went, you know, I was at a big shopping center where I live and, and I'm walking through the mall and I'm just like looking around at the people. And it was not beauty and sweetness and light. It was like fear and anxiety and worry and jealousy and all these things. And they're all coming at me from a million different directions. And it's just like this, this wave of of emotion. And I thought, holy shit, I, uh, I thought, what kind of, Fool was I now, and you know, as I went through life, that faded away, luckily. But- Sorry, that meaning- My ability to see those emotions in people dissipated over the next few weeks. But while it lasted, it was overwhelming. It was like devastating to me.
0: I mean, I so appreciate the complexity you describe and- from what I understand, while the very acute results of the TMS have dissipated over time, there is this element of you can't unsee what you've seen, right? And you are, um, you are altered permanently from this experience in terms of your perspective of the world.
3: And I also felt like my dream was kind of shattered. This idea that if I could see these things in other people, my life would be beautiful, and and so now we are thirteen years since that first TMS experience, hmm. and and I, and I guess I guess I never imagined that just a brief experience like that could change your life yeah. forever. The way I, I guess I could explain it. And maybe it's an explanation is if you're a colorblind person and you grow up and you imagine people are talking about the beautiful blue sky, pretty red shirt, nice green grass, and, and of course, to you, it's all shades of gray, and you start thinking, it's just bullshit. And it just makes you angry, this blue, yellow, green talk. It's all the same. You know it. You know the evidence of your eyes. And you go into some doctor's office, and they do something to you, and you walk out, and you see color, and you realize, holy shit, these people were telling the truth. It's really what it is. Mm. And then the ability fades away. yeah Well, even if you go back to see in a black and white world, you are never going to forget That all those other people are seeing yellows and blues and greens, and you're going to try your hardest to discern which shade of gray is yellow and what's green, and can I determine green by context? Mm. You know, that's a lawn, so that must be green. And you're going to always be changed. I don't know what to say except that I'm I'm changed all these years later, and and the insight, I think has been empowering, yeah. but it was a really, really rough ride. Yeah. So it was a very mixed bag. It was it was a very mixed thing.
0: That leads me to a, another question I have for you, John, which is, you know, you talk about this experience in the mall where you're inundated with emotion, and what you're realizing is your experience being on the autism spectrum wasn't shielding you it, it from did. all the good parts. It was shielding it was... me
3: from those bad parts.
0: It was shielding you from bad parts too, yes, right? Yes, be- being and-
3: autistic definitely shielded me from that. It made me different, but it didn't make me worse because those people who have to live with that, you know, uh, being a logical person, they can't be logical people because there's so much emotion around them. I don't have that around me, so I am logical. And, and you know, logic works in a lot of life. You want to be a programmer, boy, there's nothing better than logic.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I'm wondering what impact the TMS had on your relationship with your wife.
3: Well, ultimately my wife was living with significant depression. And because I was largely blind to the emotional cues from others, her included, um, she was just what she was, you know, and and she could say like I, I can't get out of bed today I'm too depressed and I would say okay I'm going to work and I would just and that worked you know worked for us but but when I saw those feelings after the TMS I saw her sadness and misery and I thought I must have done this to her we're married I must be the cause of her misery that's just just horrible and and mm. it it really shattered my marriage I thought, you know, I'm like killing her and, and her depression is killing me and we're horrible for each other and I, I, I got to leave. And, you know, and I guess I'm, I'm, I'm very sad for that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a poignant illustration of the complexities that come along with picking up on human emotions. Knowing what you know now, if you could go back in time, would you still go through with the TMS experiments?
3: If you put me in the shoes of the post-TMS John Robeson, um, where I had experienced what it would be like to see and feel emotion, and I, I saw and felt what it's like to read emotions, and yes, that's a powerful thing. And yes, that could help me engage with people who don't know me, but it devastated my logical brain, and it upended the world as I had known it. I am not a broken version of some someone else's normal. I am my normal. Autistic people may be different from non-autistic people, but we are not broken. And, and that's what's been brought home to me, I think, through this TMS. And, and now that I know that, Do I need to learn it again? No, that's a lifelong lesson. And that's a gift the TMS gave me that I truly understand that as an autistic person, I am my normal and I'm a good normal, as much a complete, correct person as anyone else.
0: Join me next week when I talk with psychologist Angela Duckworth about the science of grit and how natural talent and ability will only take you so far. I, I really don't know anybody who has become world-class in economics or at being a political leader or, or anything else, you know, a classroom teacher, a nurse, like without years and years of effort. A Slight Change of Plans is created, written, and executive produced by me, Maya Shunker. The Slight Change family includes Tyler Green, our senior producer, Jen Guerra, our senior editor, Ben Tolliday, our sound engineer, Emily Rostek, our associate producer, and Mia Lavelle, our executive producer. Luis Guerra wrote our theme song and Ginger Smith helped arrange the vocals. A Slight Change of Plans is a production of Pushkin Industries. So big thanks to everyone there. Including Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, Lee Tal Malad, and Heather Fain, and of course, a very special thanks to Jimmy Lee. You can follow a slight change of plans on Instagram at Dr. Maya Shunker.
3: See you next week And then the neurologist comes in to see me and he says, he says, "What day is it, and what's your name and who's the mm. president?" and uh, <laughs> He asks me some questions I don't know the answer to. He says something (laughs) like, well, who's our senator? I thought, shit, I don't know who our senator is. I
0: I didn't know it before either.
3: (laughs) Yeah. uh, I
0: would totally admit you, John. And
3: he says, okay, I get it. You haven't forgotten it. You never knew it.
2: Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury.